No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Uh, Sheikh Saeed Raji, uh, he's born in Somalia, he's studied abroad, uh, he's been an imam in North America, United States, and in Canada. He's been in Western Canada, he's been in Eastern Canada, and uh, he's currently the head of the Sakina Center. And uh, without further uh, delay, I want to get right into it because we have a lot of different things uh, to discuss and talk about which I believe is going to be very beneficial to the Muslim community. So I'd like to welcome Sheikh Said Raji. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakallah khair for having me over. So Sheikh, uh, I recently, I just, a few seconds ago actually, I shared with you a picture a blast from the past uh, of uh, a major uh, conference that occurred in Calgary 16 years ago. And uh, if we could have our uh, producer put it up on the screen, inshallah. So this is a picture of myself, uh, Sheikh Said Raji, and Hakeem the Dream, Olajuwon, okay, two-time NBA champion. Uh, and uh, Mamoru Najai. So uh, there were two NBA basketball players. Alhamdulillah, a lot of youth came out to that event. And uh, it was probably one of the biggest events, I would say, uh, in Calgary. Like at that time and even today, like, you know, many people remember that uh, today. So do you do you remember that uh, event, Sheikh? Yeah, absolutely. I vividly remember everything. And I, as a matter of fact, I remember the background, why... Um, and the reason why we brought those two people, mashallah, tabarakallah. Um, yes. The city of Calgary at that time, when I went, first time I moved to Calgary was, I think, April 2013. Um, mm. It was very mild, you know, city very calm. So we needed something that would attract the youth. Uh, if you remember, we had IISC, yeah, Islamic Information Society of Calgary those days. Um, yes. So we said, hey, why don't we bring somebody or some, you know, some individuals that can really shake up the city and do do something that would excite the youth? Um, it yes. happened that I had a very a good connection or relationship with Hakim Alajuan and Mamadou Anjai at that time. So I called them over. I said, why don't you guys come over? And if you remember, um, say, if you remember those days, we started something called MBA, Muslim Basketball Association. Yes. You remember those things? Yes. So we I was actually, uh, yeah, I think I played a few games in that, <laughs> so, in that, in that league. Yeah, yeah I, I remember. So we say, hey, Hakeem, why don't you come over? This is the first time in the West yeah. Coast, in that side of the country, that we have MBA, Muslim MBA uh, basketball. So he came over. Yeah. And I remember we, uh, yeah. we flew him first class. And he's like, oh, yeah. guys, you guys are doing better than actual NBA. I said, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I think he would have to yeah. uh, come like first or business class. He's just too long. Like he's too tall yeah. um, to sit oh, in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I think just physically it would be impossible for him uh, to, to fly an economy, right? True, true. It was, yeah. yeah. So, 
but it, it was it actually it was it was very very uh, humbling experience really why because the youth were able you know they see these guys you know the role model a uh, guy who's playing basketball in in the highest level but yet he's fasting you know he's not allowing you know champagne to be spread all over for you know you know a championship game and all that and everybody, his own association, you know, Houston Rockets, they had so much respect for him, so much mm. respect. Um, I remember mm. we used to go to uh, basketball here in Toronto when he was playing for the Raptors. And Vince Carter, mm. uh, Shaquille O'Neal, when they come, mm. if Hakeem is there, they were just literally, you know, they were... Mm. I, I don't know if one, once Shaquille O'Neal came to say hi to... Um, to Hakeem, and you see how much they respected him, really. Yes. You know, I, I find interesting his legacy because he was also an openly practicing Muslim in the NBA. And his, it seems like his experience or his effect uh, has been different than, say, some of the other Muslims who are more controversial figures within the NBA. So he, like, was openly fasting. Um, you know, he was obviously coming to Islamic conferences, so he's not hiding his Islam at all. No. But why do you feel he was received uh, a little bit differently? Because, you know, for example, he was not like uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who was blackballed in the NBA, who was extremely talented. Like Mahmoud Abdul Rauf was very, very talented. So it was not a matter of talent, but it was more of him being politically ostracized so what do you think is the difference that allowed Hakeem Olajuwon to not only be a champion uh but also be able to represent himself as an openly practicing Muslim and not have that same type of blowback what do you what would you say what would your analysis be well it's, it's all about personalities first of all an understanding of Islam mm. second of all Hakeem understood uh from the beginning that I don't need to preach. I need to show. I need to show what Islam is. I need to practice. I need to tell these guys, you know, I don't drink. I don't party. I don't have, you know, side girlfriends. I, I, I don't gamble. You know, when my time for prayer, I pray. For time, for time for fasting, I fast. You know, I respect every E and every and each one of you for what you believe and what you stand for. Therefore, I also, you know, want you to give me the similar respect. Um, I remember the, you know, Christmas time, they used to come and leave gifts uh, or, you know, people trying to give him a gift. But you know what he used to do during Eid time? Um, he used to send gifts for every single member of his team, from the management, from the mm. player, from the janitors, everybody. Wow. He would send them eight gifts. So people mm. love him for what he is. Um, if you ever speak to Shaquille O'Neal, you know, he would have nothing to say but praises about Hakim. Why? Because Hakim really showed what Islam is. He did not just preach. Mm. He did not want to be controversial. Also, the background, Hakim, uh, he was told, he personally told us when, you know, I don't know, I hope he doesn't mind, but he said two African-Americans came to me while I was practicing, you know, all sweating, all this. And then they said to him, are you a Muslim? And he said, I got offended. And I said, yes, I'm a Muslim. And then they said to him, well, get ready. We're going to pick you up for Juma." He said, you know, I took it you know, to the bone. How could these people even ask me a question? 
Islam. So he said, I was ready for Jummah, for the next Jummah. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they took him to the masjid, they took him to the Imam. And then mm -hmm. what he did, according to what he told us that, those days when he came to visit us, from that day, he sat under that Imam. He learned Islam from one source. He wasn't a person you know, learning from whoever he hears. No, he was very balanced. Mm. So he had you know, mm. guidance. He had someone to tell him what to do. He was also eager to learn Islam. So, But at the end of the day, it was him saying, this is what Islam is. This is the beauty of Islam. Mm. And, you know... Mm. A lot of people around him accepted Islam. And you remember that event, seven people came out of nowhere, accepted Islam. And one of them, I don't know if you remember, Sayyid, like I say, there was a, you know, Islamic uh, Islamic school. You know, um, there was a Islamic school. So we, 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 we had an open court one night. And there was this Sudanese, Sudanese kid from South Sudan. And he was, you know, big, tall, and mashallah, you know, he's like as tall as a Hakim. But he's wearing a cross, right? You know, mm. when he came, when he came, he took it off. Mm. And he said, Hakim, I'm a Muslim. He said, mm. but my community, they were all Christians. So even though we were Muslim in South Sudan, but my father and my mother had to pretend that we're Christian, you know, so we can fit in. And when we moved to Calgary, they still with the same community. And I wear a cross, not because I believe, but mm. all my friends are wearing it. But he took it off out of respect for Hakim. And then he started learning Islam slowly. So Hakim had that, you know, uh, people would you know, gravitate towards him and it was easy to talk to. And he never judged anybody. And maybe that's why, you know, he was well received. Mm. You know, subhanAllah, like, uh, you know, I remember... Uh, the when they won the Houston Rockets won the championship. I actually watched those games, and you know when you watch your favorite NBA player, you try to recreate the moves, and you know he had that classic oh, dream shake, the dream uh, shake, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He he had the shake, and then he'd go back, you know, and uh, yeah, the the fadeaway jumper. He had uh, yeah. probably one of the best short range jumpers in the game, and yeah. so I, I remember when they did win that championship, and there wasn't this huge melee of like alcohol being sprayed around in the locker room. Right. No. And uh, seeing him in person and spending some time with him in person, definitely he was a very humble person. Here's a multimillionaire, right? Let's be frank. Here's a, here's a, he's, he's a, he's a multimillionaire. He's a superstar. He's well-respected. Even now his consulting fee, like, you know, NBA players go to him today. Professional NBA oh, players yeah. go to him oh, today yeah. for training and his consulting fee is hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know what I mean? So uh, he still commands that high level of respect. And uh, he has this, uh, as you mentioned, through his actions, this uh, this effect on uh, the rest of his players, his community, and so forth. And so do you think then this is not a, an issue of like, okay, this way of da'wah is better than another? Because there's sometimes, for example, injustices where you want to speak out, about, uh, you want to use your platform to speak out for these injustices and you want to you want to make some noise and it might cost you something it might cost you like a paycheck it might cost you like your career so is it an issue of like hey we have people within our ummah who are willing to do this and we need to respect that and we have some other people in the ummah 
uh, who are showing more from their actions. They're showing more soft diplomacy, but they complement each other. It's not an issue of like one being better than another. As what you would you stated, say in regards to that? As, as you stated, say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he gave us, uh, each one of us is, is loaded with talent, right? Each one of us is capable of doing something for the deen. None of us can say, I can't do anything for this deen. Uh, but there are some of us like Hakim Najwan who can really subtly, you know, invite everybody to Islam uh, without being, you know, uh, you know, overprotective of their own faith. Uh, there are also those people who, you know, they like to show because, again, non-Muslim, they all, they're not one blueprint. They have a different personality, different background, different, you know, understanding of their own faith and other faiths. But you also have someone like uh, Zakir Knight who say, okay, well, this is what Christianity say about God. This is what, uh, you know, Hinduism said about God. This is what Islam said about God. And he has, you know, that level of a scholarly level where he can present his fact in that matter. So each one of us is capable. And Rasulullah Each one of us is, and Allah created for a purpose. Allah gave us the ability. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, he was like Ibrahim alayhi salam. But Umar bin Khattab, he was like Musa alayhi salam, Nuh. So everybody has a different personality. So you as a Muslim, you should know your capacity, your ability, and perform well. However, look at the da'wah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa Look at the approach of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was always subtle, you know, calm da'wah. Yes, there was a time that you really need to stand up for your, your for your right and fight, whether it's a physical or verbal or you know on your with your pen. But most of his dawah was just a subtle dawah. Let the people see the beauty of Islam, and they themselves will judge it. They themselves will accept it. Remember the man, um, Rasulullah He was a very wise man. And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, Allah said in the Quran, "لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ." He's the best example to follow. But remember, the Messenger of Allah, he, he was standing between two mountains. Mountains, and he was looking at the the ghanam sadaqa, you know, sheep that was collected for you know for 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 sadaqa. And then this Bedouin Arabi, he looked at these all these sheep, and he and you can see him, and I can imagine that man literally drooling for this because he loved sheep. So he, the messenger of Allah, he looked at it, and the man said, "Ya Muhammad, oh Muhammad, uh, all is yours." And the Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam said. It is yours if you like. So the man, he drove all the sheep away. Guess what he did? When he went back to his people, قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ Oh my people, accept Islam. فَوَاللَّهِ إِنَّ مُحَمَّدًا لَيُعْطِي مَنْ لَا يَخْشَ He say, give, I mean, go and accept Islam. Indeed, Muhammad, he gives like a man who have no fear of poverty. What I'm trying to, under, to tell you is, Rasulullah, he understood the personality of this person. So as a da'i, you know, you should understand who you're talking to. You know, sometimes you need to be stern and firm. And sometimes let your subtle da'wah do the job. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it seems like within our community, we want to uh, be almost pigeonholed. Like we want to focus very narrowly on one thing, uh, sometimes at the expense of disregarding many other uh, aspects within our deen, you know, that are 
just as beneficial or just as relevant. You know what I mean? So, for example, you might have somebody who just focuses on one area of da'wah. Or they say, well, we just need to focus in on our community. Uh, or it's uh, like, we got to be just politically active. So people become not uh, necessarily specialists, but they become exclusionists. So they want to exclude the benefit of many other people. You know, you know what I mean? Whether it's um, a, a person who has a certain area of knowledge, whether it's a person who has certain skill sets or, or, or whatever. And uh, for me, I reflect upon like this type of attitude, you know, coming from, uh, you know, even Shaitan, where he's just focusing on one thing. When he's not bowing to Ahmad al-Islam, he's focusing on that one aspect. Oh, materially, I'm better than him. I'm made of fire. He's made out of clay. But the whole, like, it's, you know, I feel like the spirit of Islam is like, you know, as Ahl-Sunnah wa Jama'ah says, bring everything together. Bring the people together, the Jama'ah. Bring the Jama'ah of all the Hadith and Ayat of Quran before you make your ruling, right? So bring things in a more comprehensive way. So how can we avoid that? Because it just seems like, you know, for example, you go to a masjid. Well, this masjid, they focus in on uh, good relationships with non-Muslims. But they don't care about good relationships with Muslims. You know what I mean? So how can we, because you brought up some very important points here, actually. How can we overcome that? How can we overcome this idea of becoming so ex exclusionary, just carving out this little section and saying, this is what's important for myself and for the community? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya so Islam mm. is not something Allah said, all who you believe enter Islam at whole. You know, you can't pick and choose. Can't say, I'm going to only do this. I'm going to ignore this. Islam is, is, a, is a total religion. It's a total system of life or way of life. Um, every masjid, every community, every organization, every entity, they should have that understanding. Islam is bigger than their own little masjid, their own little organization, their own little community. Uh, however, I, as a person, I respect everybody. I respect those who want to concentrate on the da'wah, you know, general da'wah. I respect those who want to concentrate in the political uh, arena. Uh, I, I respect those who concentrate on education, all this. But I would say Islam is not only that. Islam is all of that. You can't just say, you know, this is my way and it is the only way you will go to Jannah is through this. Uh, once upon a time, I was a part of a, a Muslim group, and when I decided to, you know, to to step over that or out of that and be part of the greater jama'ah, I remember the member of that community came to me and said, "If you leave, that means Allah has fired you from the job of being a da'iyah. Therefore, all your previous deeds are uh, rendered un unaccepted, uh, not accepted. Therefore, you're going to Jahannam up front like that." But I think that is out of ignorance, out of jihad. What I would say to the brothers and sisters who are listening to this, you know, respect those who are doing a certain job and learn to accommodate, learn to understand all of us, you know, doing good job. I'm doing good job by teaching. I'm doing good job by giving down on the street. I'm doing, giving good job on, you know, walking, going to visit the Muslims. I'm doing good job by, you know, doing on what do you call it, with the non-Muslim. I'm doing good job. However, you know, do not criticize anyone else. Now, Islam is like a pizza. You know, we have, you know, slices. You can't just take one little slice and magnify it and say, this is Islam. 
That's not how it works. You know, everybody, the one who's doing jihad fi sabilillah, the one who's doing ilm fi sabilillah, the one who's, you know, working for, for, for siyasa, all of them should be equally respected and they themselves they should respect and understand that we have different talents and where we're going to employ those talents and these talents for the sake of our deen and community. Mm. So uh, some of the reasons perhaps we have also these divisions is that just uh, logistically, like we have uh, a limited number of people who are actually willing to put in the work, right? We have a limited number of money, resources, uh, we have a little bit of number of time and all of these different things. So sometimes I think just logistically, it's almost like a competition of these resources, right? So so then it brings people at odds, right? So logistically. And then there could be a spiritual component where there's not a meeting of the, of the minds and the hearts. So what do you think is at play? Is it more of a logistical thing? Is it a spiritual thing? Or do you think it's a combination of both? Ah, uh, well, since you exposed me and you know how long I've been in da'wah, you know, you know, I've, I've been in this world for a very long time and I, I've been into different levels. I've been in level of, you know, assistant imam or, you know, a, just a da'wah coordinator, um, uh, mm -hmm. an assistant imam, an imam, um, a, a manager or, you know, a president of an organization. So I've been to all levels. So I, I what I include is and please, I don't want anybody to flip and say Saeed is calling us. But what I what I what I conclude is most of these organizations and entities um, they don't take this din as a risala as a mission. They they don't take it as in hey my responsibility is this is a responsibility. This is not a position. It's not something that I need to run and lobby so people can elect me as a president of this this is not for that this is a, a mission in arab we call it a risala and that's why a risala to rusul is a it's a responsibility that you should carry uh right now i have seen masajid fighting each other and they wallahi one of them some of them said you taking our musallin away from us he said since when the musallin mm. were customers right why are we treating these people who come to worship allah as customers why are we concentrating that, hey, if these people don't come to us, I won't get the donation that I need. And so if they go to you, that means you literally cut off my rizq, which is complete, completely against uh, what Islam stands for. Islam, Rasulullah never worry about money, never worry about time, never worry about it. He was worried about, is this mission going the right direction? Are these people uh, accepting Islam? Allah saying, perhaps you're going to kill your Muhammad yourself after these people if they don't follow the deen of Allah. And Allah is saying, don't overdo, don't kill yourself, don't feel sad, don't grieve, don't have anxiety because they turn away from the deen of Allah. So what I'm saying, these messages, these organizations, these entities, our mission should be how can we save these people, our own people, and the non-Muslims, how can we save them? How can we bring them to the light of Islam? How can we show them the beauty of Islam? You know, use any halal method that's possible. But the aim should be, my mission 
is for people to accept Islam, not for me to have the largest congregation, not for my conference to be the best and the most attended conference, not my this. No, that is the wrong idea. That is where we all go wrong. Yeah, Dr. Sayyid, this is this is completely unacceptable. Um, but so I would say, you know, logistically and spiritually, we have both in, in both areas seriously. And I think we need to overcome that. And that's when we overcome that. This is, if you remember when the, when the, when Ahl al-Ridda, you know, when the, after the death of the messenger of Allah, people, you know, uh, from Tehama and all this, they said, you know what? We used to give zakat to Rasulullah. He is now dead, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We're going to pray. We're going to come for hajj. We're going to, you know, fast, but no zakat. Now, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq could have said, you know what? I'll take, you know, four out of five, alhamdulillah. But he said a beautiful statement. Islam wa ana hai? He said, are you, gonna, are you going to tell me that Islam is going to decrease in my lifetime? It's not going to happen. And then he said, Wallahi, law mana'uni iqalan kanu yadfa'un aw ya'atuna li rasooli laqataltahum alayhi. Wallahi, if they deprived me or stopped giving a rope, a piece of rope that they used to give to Rasulullah, I will fight for it. So you would understand that the mission of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq is not to, to, to have as many followers as he, you know, as he can, not to please mm. as many people as he can. His mission was, mm. is this done? And when Umar bin Khattab, not to take much of the time, when Umar bin Khattab came and he said, Ya, ya Abu Bakr, you know, we can't fight these people. And at the same time, you sending Usama bin Zayd to, to the north. We can. Why don't we wait? And everybody was standing outside of the house of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. And the only man that they consent to speak to Abu Bakr was Umar bin Khattab. And then what did Abu Bakr do? Who was very tiny, very skinny. And Umar bin Khattab, tabarakallah, was big. He grabbed him by the shirt. And he started waving him like a leaf. And like a leaf. And he said, Ajabarun fil jahiliya. He said, now you used to be big and arrogant and strong at the time of Jahiliyyah. And you now whip and weaken Islam. Get out of my face. Some of the Mu'arrikhinis, they said, Umar bin Khattab walked out of that house crawling on his hands and knees. Umar Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. So the Risala of Islam, you know, the complete mission of Islam should be things that we concentrate and focus on, Akhi. Mm. It seems like the essence of what you're saying is that the Sahaba and the standard set by the Khulafa Rashidun was to take principle over popularity. And maybe yeah, that's what absolutely. leads us astray uh, from the leadership perspective, from an awam, like a jama'a perspective, like to take this, to go for something that is popular or maybe something that is trending or to fight over resources, maybe necessarily, maybe that the whole, the solution for both spiritually and logistically is to come back to your principles, you know, to what are the core principles of Islam? Exactly. And be united upon that. You know, uh, one thing that we fail to recognize when you have these divisions is the collateral damage. Uh, if you remember, you know, back in your time in Alberta, there were uh, two youth groups, right, that were kind of at odds with one another. And I'm just reflecting upon this, like, you know, uh, this situation 16 years ago or whatever. And I look at it today, and there was these divisions uh, amongst these youth groups. Uh, and it was just, I wouldn't say they weren't like significant divisions that required them to be at such odds with one another. 
but I feel the aftermath of that is very now 16. They were youth. They were young guys back then. None of them became prolific leaders within the community, like remain in the community. There was supposedly a youth group present investing in them and their development. And it's like 0% retention and a return on your investment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you yeah. see that? Do you see that as a, like a, a, as a systemic problem within our community? Absolutely. That we have these youth, like how many, how many for how many years, like in front of us being in Canada, almost 20 years, people coming out of Islamic schools, right? We have all this generation year after year coming out of Islamic schools. We have people coming out of these Islamic youth groups. We should have leaders in our community, we should have leaders in other areas of society that reflect the interests of the Muslim community, right? So systemically, why don't, you know, why, why don't we have that? Is that just a, a byproduct of us, again, not showing that, that leadership or showing any type of operational unity? To, to belong to an entity, whether it's a masjid or youth group, or even, uh, um, ethnic group is not against Islam. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, So we are qaba'il, we have shu'ub, we have nations, we have tribes. So it's perfectly acceptable. And the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, even at the time of war, he used to use, he used to use that to benefit the Muslims. And he used to say, this is the banner of the muhajireen, this is the banner of the Ansar. This is the banner of the Ummah. So there used to be three banners. And he used to say to the Ansar, make sure the enemies do not come through you. You know, as so the Ansar would say, nobody will get to Rasulullah through us. And if you remember the story of Sa'ad bin Rabi'ah, when the messenger of Allah in the battle of Uhud, who's going to bring me the news of Sa'ad? And one of the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, I'll bring his news to you. And then he saw 70 of the Sahaba being killed. You know, so many animals and horses have been injured and killed. And nobody knows who, who, where, where is he. So he raised his voice. فَقَالَ يَا سَعَدْ إِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Messenger of Allah, oh Sa'ad is asking about you. So Sa'ad bin Rabi' and this is the Sahabi from the Ansar. Sa'ad bin Rabi' He, with a weak voice, I'm right here. So the man went to him and he said to Sa'ad, and Sa'ad's on the ground bleeding, he's on a pool of blood. And he said to Sa'ad, Rasulullah is giving you his salam and he's asking you, how are you doing? So Sa'ad bin Abi Rabi' he smiled and he said to him, tell him wa alayka salam ya Rasulullah. Indeed, we found what you promised us. He's talking about, you know, the Jannah and all this. He's dying. He's on his death mo last moment. And then he said, ansar. This is what I'm trying to get. And tell the Ansar, La udra lakum You have no excuse in the sight of Allah if any harm gets to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa No excuse. So Rasulullah, he used that, you know, Ansar and Muhajir and all this to benefit. Now, going, coming back to your, you know, these groups, it's okay to have organization A and B and C, but the problem was we create we create youth groups to fight for us. We fuel them with the wrong intention. We label mm. 
them labels and say, you know, you know, do better than their conference. You know, have better event desks. Mm. You know, you know, no, 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 no. They, they, they had hundred kids who came for a sleepover. Guess what? This time I want you to bring two hundred youth. You know, and I'll pay for the pizza. I'll pay for the biryani. I'll pay for the berries. Whatever you know, just do it. So we didn't create leaders. We create you know ignorant soldiers. We were not creating mm. youth to lead. We were creating soldiers to fight for us. And that is where we all went wrong. And I'm not talking about in Calgary. I'm talking about Calgary, Ottawa, you know, uh, New York City. We talk about, you know, Buffalo. I'm talking about all around the Muslim world. I'm talking about London, UK. I'm talking about, you know, Birmingham. So what we need to do as imams, as a da'is, as some people, people who understood the mission of Islam, we need to make these young people, you know, understand again the risala. Of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and that is why we have, as you say, we have, you know, not only I'll add to your list, not only that we have Islamic school, but we have so many young men who graduated from Islamic University. Where are they? Mm. Where are yes. they? Every every year, I think right now, in for Canada, we have almost over hundred students in the University of Medina. Hundred more than hundred wow. students. So when they come out and they keep coming, by the way, they fall in the city of Toronto. Some of them Uber drivers, some of them, you know, Quran teachers, some of them truck drivers, some of them, you know, they, what happened to the leadership? Mm -hmm. So we need to go back and build the organization and build the youth from the foundation and a taqwa, not on a mission for them to fight for us. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that, that is true. There is, uh, when it comes to actual resources, we do have a significant amount of resources, whether it's knowledge, whether it, you know, it is just even material resources within the community. Um, one thing that I noticed in the evolution of, of Dawah, which perhaps um, has affected proper coordination and leadership within our community, is uh, some of the people who have I would say the knowledge and the ability to lead either their, their talents are being wasted. We're not supporting them properly. Or, uh, I also saw in 20 years, an evolution of like a celebrity type of culture. So it's more about the uh, perception of knowledge rather than the actual practice of knowledge. You know what I mean? So there was also this celebrity culture that came into view. So you would have very talented people, say, uh, who could maybe teach within the community, learn, you know, people can learn from them. But then it's now become like, okay, is this uh, Sheikh famous? Is this speaker famous? Uh, you know, can they draw the numbers? Uh, do they have like a huge social media following, especially nowadays in the past few years? So how can we uh, maybe address some of that as well? utilize the, these untapped resources that we have within our community and maybe give advice uh, to leaders who have capability to help change this culture because this culture does not, I would say, sustain uh, principles. It's not something that is, is conducive for fostering principles. It's more, you know, uh, unstable, you could say. This type of culture uh, envisages instability within the community. I endorse um, every single word that you say strongly. 
I really do. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we created um, a layer of da'is who only their concern is, you know, how many likes, how many followers, you know, I have this, I have, and I do sit with a lot of da'is um, and I see them bragging about the number of followers that they have. What we need to, uh, once again, I don't, uh, there's a lot of way that I say a lot of, a lot of, a lot of pain actually in the field of da'wah. Um, hmm. they, they see one of the biggest thing is I always say, and you may not like what I say, or some people may not like, if you really want to reform da'wah, change the leaders of the masajid and change the imams. You know, they are the worst two in, in the, why? Now, as the moment, the, the moment that the imam takes this job of da'wah as an actual job, you know, nine to five job or, you know, based on paycheck, then you really kill any ambition, any innovation in the imam itself, or he killed that in, in himself. And majority of the imam nowadays, that is the status. And I know some of them, they're going to be very pissed with me. But the reality is a lot of them, they don't want to uh, go against the status quo. Uh, they don't want to rock the boat. They say, well, we follow the administration and this administration. The administration, most of the administration really do not know anything about da'wah. They don't know anything about Islam in terms of knowledge. But be, and because of that, we have the imara and we have the ulama. Both of them are weak. I say, and no, you know, this is my very, very, very humble opinion. I would say most of the immigrants, the da'is, the imams, the immigrants, imams, they should have stepped aside. Uh, the people who were born and raised here, they should take the podium. They should leave. Number two. The idea of the level that celebrity, you know, uh, fever or, you know, uh, myth that has to be removed from the da'wah. Uh, I'll tell you something. My best da'wah was in Calgary. My best da'wah, personally, Saeed, was in Calgary. You know why? Because I used to go down to the level of the community. I used to play ball uh, in a Millennium Park, if you remember. And I used to play ball with them until 2 a.m. Not that I was homeless, that I didn't have home, but I knew that's where these kids are hanging. And I knew if I go and play with them, these girls will walk away and these boys will not smoke weed and drink alcohol. You know, you know, the problem is, you know, if you, you used to go hard in the paint, I remember. <laughs> hey, you know. If you want to, you had, you had, I think you had right. special sheikh status. They, they, they would, they would refrain from calling fouls on you. I think you had some special status there. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember, like you know, when people are like, how did you get away with this? <laughs> uh, well, Sorry, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> say that, but you know, um, well, but what I'm, my point is. Really, mm -hmm. if you want to do our job as a daddy, we got to go to that level. We want to change, we got to change that. And the idea of how many likes, how many Facebook followers, how many Twitter followers, how many, and I, that, that got to stop. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Said, uh, that we're missing a lot. 
in our community. And the, the biggest thing, and I'd like to really redirect this conversation to something that was really bothering me, and that is the lack of um, uh, a communication amongst the leaders, lack of mm. uh, um, um, unity, if you want to say, amongst the leaders. Um, and every leader, every imam, every organization, they, they want to have their own little khilafah. You know, they want to have their own little things, like little dawla. You know, at the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, when the Tatar was attacking, or even at the time of the, when the, when the Europeans started invading Muslim world, why did they defeat us? Because we have little khilafat, little dawla. And I think our masajid are doing exact the same thing right now. Our imams are doing the same thing. And the day that we overcome this, uh, this unity and we work together, that we can do something together. If I know Dr. Sayyid Iqbal and I can rely on him and he's doing his, his work and I'm doing, and he knows that I'm doing my work in Toronto and we can link together in the clouds, we link to, we work together, then we can go somewhere. But if Brother Saidi says, this is Sakina, this is my domain, this is my khilafa, you know, I'm the Amir, I'm the king, I'm the ruler, and everybody is my subject. And that is the problem that we have with the Muslim community. I know for a fact that we're lacking that. And, you know, I deal with a lot of politicians. By the way, I became almost imam slash politician. Is that, you know, and I... Are you running for mayor? You know... I, I, I think I will win if I run against John Ture this time. But, yeah, you, 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 know, you have a strong vote, uh, I think. You have a strong community there that will get you in. <laughs> My point is, we can't change the condition of the Ummah unless first we unite. So we need to, the change has to come from us. I mean, Sayyidim, sorry. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree because I, I think some like as you mentioned amongst even uh, the leaders, like to at least have a source of two things. Uh, one is support. Say for example, if one of our imams, one of our speakers is singled out, they have support from the community. We should be able to support them. And on the other hand, uh, having speaker or sorry the ulama or the the leaders united. They can also admonish one another. Like we're so fragile sometimes. It's like you just want to be told how right you are. You don't want to be told, hey, listen, you made a mistake. So actually both of those things we should seek. We should seek admonishment and we should seek support in one another. And I think that's the uh, essence of a Dina Nasiha. What would you say? Number one, I... If I hear you correctly, you said the imams in the local community, they have support, which I don't No, I said they should. No, I, 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 what I'm saying is I that, that, that if we as imams and du'at and leaders unite, like, like you know, uh, at least on that level, as you mentioned, on the, yeah. uh, on the level yeah. of uh, leadership, then uh, that can serve as both a source of support and a source of uh, admonishment, a, a way of checking yourself, you know, so that exactly. if you do make mistakes, you have people that you trust that can tell you, hey, you screwed up, you need to fix this up. You know what I mean? Or uh, if you do something that you have support, like, okay, I'm saying the truth, I want to stand up for the haq, and I know I'm going to have brothers and sisters who's going to have my back. Well, I'll tell you something. 
100% or 99% the imams, they don't have support, not from the community, not from the leadership, not from a collective imams of different parts of the world. Um, mm. If I say something today that I think is correct and is based on the Sharia and the Sunnah, and I think I use the ultimate hikmah, um, the best that I can get, the best support that I may get is when someone sees me in a private place and say, you know, good job or that you were right. So mm. if you say something, nobody's gonna come out for your aid nobody's gonna come after you so a lot of imams they withdraw from the community and they say you know what I'm just gonna do my job because tomorrow if something happens to me nothing nobody's gonna come after me I remember the days that I was in a, in in Calgary one of the imams said something he quoted hadith in the Sahih al-Bukhari and may and then the first people, of course, the media got on that hadith and the khutbah, and then it became, you know, a headline. The first people who attacked that imam mm. was so-called Muslim organization. The first people mm. who said, we have nothing to do with this, were the Muslim community leaders. And I remember, mm. um, the, what was it, Calgary Hurdle? Hurdle? Was it something, uh, one of Herald, the newspapers. That newspaper, the reporter came to the leaders in, in, in Calgary at that time. And they said, what do you think what this imam said? And they were like, oh, he's a radical. He is this. He's what have you. And they, they threw him under the bus. So that lady, she just went. And so she said, so everything he said is not Islamic. No, it's out of Islam. And she just went to Sahih al-Bukhari. And she published her article saying, who's lying? They're Bukhari or they're leaders, right? So mm. now if an imam says something, or if he takes a stand for the sake mm. of, let us say Muslims, for the sake of hijab, for the sake of no one will ever come after that imam. Let me tell you something that person happened to me. I don't know if you are, if you are aware of. When I came here to the city of Toronto, I gave a khutbah. And the khutbah was... Uh, if you remember this man by the name Tariq Fatah, Tariq mm, Fatah yes. wrote an official letter to Stephen Harbour saying that niqab should be banned. Niqab should be banned. So I simply got on the member. Severely, I spoke to you know I, to the community. Listen, we have 750 people sitting here. I print out what to say to this man and how to approach. And I say, listen go and call the so-called organization by the name Muslim Congress, I think Canadian Muslim Congress, and tell them, you know, please do not speak on behalf of Muslims because this is against our Islam. And, you know, this is a Canada a country called Canada and everybody is has the ultimate freedom to dress the way they like. And I mentioned an incident, if you remember, maybe you, you don't remember, but there was an incident where a young lady, I believe in somewhere in Ontario, I was in London, Ontario, Kitchener. She fought the court, the Supreme Court, saying that I want to be topless. Summertime is hard for me mm. to wear a bra. Men yes. are allowed to be topless. I want to be topless. So I used the analogy and said, look, she went and she won the case. Now, Tariq Fatah mm. cannot come to us and say niqab should be banned by Stephen Harper. Now, mm. Tariq Fatah, he was working for uh, um, Global and Mail, I believe. So he was writing on the council. 
they were an article about me saying preacher of hate and Tariq Fatah he said when Saeed was saying in Alhamdulillah he was cursing the Christians and the Jews right this is the Arabic part he was cursing the Arabic and of course we, we rebel I mean we, 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 we replied to that and we, we went to the media conference and we, we did what we need to do but the point that I'm trying to make Guess how many Imams spoke about the subject? How many Imams said, you know, this is what he said is true. You know, if you want to be topless, that's your choice. As Imam Sa'id said, if you want to wear niqab, you know, this is the only person who spoke about this was that what are called the primary's house, the, the prime minister's house. They wrote and they issue a verdict saying we're not going to get involved with the dress code of our Canadians. Right, but let me ask you: How many imams stood up for with me? How many imams said, "You know, our sisters, yeah. you know, they, they, they none." So imams, they don't have support from their community, and the imams mm -hmm. they do not support each other. And I can tell you, every imam in the city of Toronto, uh, the media came after them one after another. Um, you know, a hate group came after them nobody stood up for them so the problem is mm. we are not willing to stand with each other we're not we're not with, with other organized other communities where they stand up. okay you're wrong i can admonish you you know secretly let us say as you said you know yes you guys should be as an imam for example of the imam community of the imam society i'm sorry you should hold me responsible mm. say, brother Saeed, how can you say this you're entitled without exposing me to the public to the ignorant people. But the problem with our community is we were not we're not willing to stand up together. Let me give you another example. I found eight people, eight people, that uh, the passport office held their passports, and they said we gotta do second screening, second screening, and the third screening. You know, a different level of screening. So I said to you, listen, why don't we come together? Why don't we all eight, you guys come together? Let us adjust this issue as a community. And then they will respond. No one wants to come up. So we are so defeated internally. If I see you being dragged, if I see you, wallahi, you, you spoke for the sake of Islam, you spoke for the sake of your community, you spoke for what you think is right, and I see you them dragging, see you dragging. I will, I, the way we acting right now, I'm not going to speak about what happened to you. An mm. exact, remember at the time of Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, they said, some of the ulama I read somewhere, that the tata, that a woman would come and she said, hey, Muslim men stand right there. I forgot my sword. Wait, don't leave. Mm. And you will, stand there until she goes to her house bring a sword kill 10 men after another and everybody is waiting for and you, if you ask a number 10 yeah you saw number one being killed number two being killed why didn't you run how come you didn't run how come mm -hmm. you didn't defend yourself he will say i was hoping that she would get tired by the time she gets to me you know? same thing here the mentality is like, okay, now they drag Saeed, now they drag Sayyid ibn Iqbal. They will never come to me. And that is that is the ultimate defeat.
So if the imams and the leaders of the community are acting like this, who's going to stand up for Islam? Yes. It's, and I think people fail to appreciate how we set ourselves up for victimization. Because yeah. we, when we don't have this confidence, when we don't have uh, self-confidence and respect and self-esteem for our own self, our own roots, our own history, our own people, then we can be easily exploited. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at these issues, these are fundamental human rights issues. But what happens is because we're so weak uh, in terms of our own uh, self-worth, that it becomes now a cultural issue which we have no say in, you know? So exactly. to give you uh, like an example uh, that we can see in our, our current events, you know, it, it shows a lack of critical thinking, a lack of, uh, you could say, self-confidence, is that they uh, allowed now Sarawat and Aya Sophia. So they, uh, they, they allowed it to become a masjid again, okay? Now, when people look at this, they fit, like, you see a segment of Muslims saying, oh, this is horrible that they're allowing, you know, that they're doing this, that they're reverting it to a masjid. This is like intolerance, all of this stuff, right? Yet they don't look at the historical context. That was part of like an anti-Islam uh, systemic policies that were implemented in, in Turkey. You know, when they uh, converted it to a museum, that was just one policy out of them banning the Adhan in Arabi, banning uh, teaching of Quran. Uh, they were banning, you know, hijab in, in institutions. How many sisters for decades suffered brutal oppression? They were jailed. I still have the articles to this day. I remember when we were, uh, um, you know, trying to spread awareness of this in the late 90s of sisters who, when they would come from abroad, if they were wearing hijab, they would be interrogated for hours. If they yeah. tried to go into the university, I still have pictures of these sisters getting beaten up. Okay. So when those policy that when that was instituted, uh, you know, uh, Aya Sophia was turned from a masjid into a museum. That was part of an Islamophobic campaign to uh, oppress anyone who wanted to practice their religion. And no, 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 let's not reflect that. Let's now, no, no, we're the ones who are the oppressors. Oh, no, they're, uh, yet, if you look at the policy, he says Muslims and non-Muslims are welcome. Actually, if you go to the blue masjid, which is already a masjid that, uh, you know, non-Muslims and both Muslims, they go and visit. It's just, what they do is they make a certain section, a musallah, where people can pray. That's literally the only difference. And it's open to everyone. They're, they're not saying any non-Muslim, you know, uh, any non-Muslim is uh, is barred from coming in, right? Yet right. you have Muslims now who are attacking this and saying this is intolerant and, you know, all of these different types of issues. So, you know, if, 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 if an imam says something that is, hey, listen, this is from our religion, they'll say, oh, no, no, this is intolerant. When it has nothing to do with human rights infringing on anybody's, uh, you know, uh, ch you know, freedom to choose whatever they want to do, but just because this is our identity, no, you as Muslim don't even have the right to talk in public discourse what your value system is. It's like you do not even have the right to do that. We have to always be on the defensive and explain our position from a defensive position. So, you know, how can we get this confidence back within our community? Because it's like, you know, when you're... Uh, you you need people who have this courageous heart to 
strengthen one another. You know what I mean? If we just keep cutting and running from one another, eventually it's going to come to you. The hammer is going to come to you. You know what I mean? But, uh, you know, people, uh, we, I think just that, just that low self-esteem that we're willing to accept this uh, type of humiliation on that level. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a disease. It's actually a disease. Um, when you, you cannot stand up for your rights and you want someone else to deliver to you on a golden plate, and you always play the victim. You always, you know, and you allow yourself to be victimized. It's, it's a disease. It's a sickness. I mean, who's going to give you a right on a golden place? Who's going to deliver your rights to you on a golden place? Nobody. Nobody. Um, one of the events, uh, we invited, we invited the, the mayor of the city to speak on behalf of a Muslim issue that was very, very touchy. And I lost it. You know why I lost it? Because we're sitting with this man as an imam, and I'm, I'm, he's a politician. I mean, he will say and do whatever it takes to be elected. And you as a Muslim, you should dictate and ask him what he can do for us. I had enough. Everyone who speaks to address this man was praising him. And then they conclude by saying, how can we serve you? Mm. That's when I lost it. I said, call the guy because your own entities and organizations has been, you know, being literally victimized. And now you're saying to this man, and he's sitting there, you say, how can we serve you? See, mm. Playing, he's supposed we, to serve them. And, he's supposed to represent them. But that's the, but that's that's the, the the most pathetic thing is when we see when we see someone in in power, we just we melt. We lose ourselves in him or her. We we don't we you forget every rights that you have for over him, and you just want to serve him. And that is, by the way. 90% comes from the imams who were raised outside of Western countries. 90%. Because system over there is, 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 is it trained them to be humble and to serve. Where, like, look, the Sahaba, look at the Tabi'een, you know, Atar bin Abi Rabah, who one of the he said, you know, he was not a very attractive man. He was not a rich man. He was not, you know, but he was sit next to the Khalifa because Khalifa wants him to sit next to him. And then he would address with strength, with confidence. And he said, you know, you need to help the Mujahideen on the borders. You need to serve the, you know, the, the grandchildren of the Sahaba. You need to take care of the people of Medina. You need to do this. You need to do that. And then, you know, the Amir will get up, or I mean, will, will say, yes, kama amar kama amar. To the point that Atta bin Abi Rabah, the Amir said, What can I do for you? Say nothing. I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from you. Mm. Serve the people. You know, Muslim imams here, Muslim leaders, they are so submissive to their authorities, to the leaders. When you expect them to speak on your behalf, they praise the man who's abusing you and transgressing against your rights and all that. So what we need as a Muslim leaders 
you know, forget about yourself. Because when I praise you as a governor or as a prime minister or whatever, it means I want to leave something for me in your heart. I wanna, I'm trying to please you perhaps mm. next time that, and that's exactly yes. what this man was doing. He's like, oh, I know someone, so he's very good. And they, you know, just because this mayor praised this person, this person started having, a, you know, wings like, like he said, Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam, he's about to fly out of mm. his chair because, you know, this mayor or this, you know, person. And, but that's, that's the sickening. If you really are imam, if you really are, if you really die, fight for your community, fight for your ummah, fight for your youth, fight. You have to understand, you know, I always say, me, if anybody is my, in my position, I have three handicapped, uh, handicap issues that I have to deal with in the social system. I'm black, mm. I'm immigrant, I'm a Muslim. All of those are three things that this society don't want to give their rights. Mm. Even when you go, you know, I respect what Black Lives Matter do, what Black Lives Life Matters do for blacks, but you are not included. You know, a sister with hijab is not included because you're oppressed, not because of your color. You're only you're oppressed because of your faith. You're oppressed because you came mm. here, you know, uh, as an immigrant. But we are not, we don't understand, hey, the day that they accept you as a Canadian, you have the right of a Canadian, even though they may not give it all to you, but you can ask for it. You can yeah. ask for it. So these people, they think because they were giving the citizenship and they were giving, they, we, they should be grateful to them, humble themselves, you know, serve them instead of serving and working for the community. And that is what the illness is. So. I always say, if you want this community to change, change the imams and change the presidents and the leaders of your community, of the Masajids. Then mm. perhaps, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. And I think anyone who immigrates to this country should be proud of how they came to this country because you didn't come as a conqueror. You didn't come oppressing anybody. You came to no. serve. You came uh to help benefit society i don't see anybody who comes to this country saying that i'm i'm here uh to exploit this or take over people right like that's maybe how this country started in the first place but that's not how immigrants come they should be absolutely no. they should they should have a comfort and a pride of how i came i came in a very respect i respected the people when i came uh you know to this country but unfortunately as you've mentioned I think that mentality does come from our old world. I think it is uh, remnants and shackles of colonization because we've been so used to being oppressed for so long that it has had these these scars, these these psychological scars that our community continues to deal with. Uh, I the the most similar situation I can uh, that sometimes I, I go to with the Quran is if you look at the uh, Bani Israel, you know the people of Musa Salam. So Musa is, is is standing up for a, a man that's being oppressed and he's selling him out the next day. He's literally selling. He's like, are you going to kill me just like you killed him? I just saved you yesterday. You know what I mean? And that, 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 that oppressed mentality, that victim mentality stayed with them. Okay. Now it's time uh, for you to go and 
uh, you know, take Jerusalem. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. You go. You go and you take care of it. We're going to be, uh, you know, s- sitting right here. This this whole idea, this the psychological uh, effect, I, I, I do agree with you that it comes from this immigrant mentality. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think even some of the people who are born and brought up here, they don't necessarily, some of them do have the confidence, some of them don't. But I one thing I would say that um, we can benefit from, because when I look at people who are immigrants to this country or people who are born and raised, I feel they have complementary traits. So one of the things that I see from people who do come, for example, is they do have a um, a sense of like akhlaq and adab and etiquettes, you know what I mean? Like knowing how to treat elders or at least, you know, people of ilm and things like that. They emphasize that more a little bit just because of that environment that they have come from. Sometimes they're a little bit more, I guess, um, conservative when it comes to like intergender relations. Do you understand what I'm saying? So they do have some natural things that um, I think we can, we can really appreciate like from that immigrant generation. But there's also that other baggage that comes along with it, right? Like the... Um, maybe some of the more uh, cultural aspects of Islam being practiced, some of the more nationalistic, uh, you know, not really having necessarily the confidence to stand up for justice. I remember a um, a brother who was very well educated. He was a head of a university department, okay? And uh, he still feared Qaddafi. He was still, and he had been in Canada for decades, for decades. And you know, subhanAllah, people like, I, I feel like because we don't take the mic and we don't speak for ourselves, the media really, we get we get hit from both sides. You know, like, think about this, Sheikh. You, people have come from these dictatorships and they've been abused. Then yeah. they come here and then they're held, respo- they're held responsible. Oh, we have this liberal standard of what a just society should be like. Everything we see wrong in the Muslim world is your fault. And so it's like, I have to explain everything that goes on in, 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 my, uh, in my country of origin. And I just escaped being bullied there. So now it's like you're being bullied from two sides. Do you know what I mean? So I think psychologically, you find many Muslims between this rock and a hard place. Uh, and, and that could maybe explain a little bit of why, you know, we behave the way that we do sometimes. What would you say? Habibi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Do not belittle people and do not, you know, um, undercut their rights. Um, I'm not talking about akhlaq. Like by far, people who came from back, from back, back home, they do have a lot of akhlaq, a lot of manners, a lot of courtesy, a lot of you. Know, the culture was Islamic, even though they were not practicing Islam, but the culture was Islam. Um, mm. But because you're good at one thing, doesn't mean you're good at other thing. Um, if you remember Hadith of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said to one of the Sahaba, he said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, you are appointed so-and-so, and you are appointed so-and-so, and you are appointed so-and-so. What about me? So the Messenger of Allah, this was Abu Darda, he said, I love you for the sake of Allah, but don't you ever don't you ever rule between two people. You have weak personality. This is a Sahabi. But this Sahabi, mm-hmm. at the same time, he was the Alim of the Ummah. He was the Alim. He was the Mufti 
Abu Darda was a mufti even after the death of the Messenger of Allah. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about the oppression that took place over there. They overcome all the oppression and obstacles that they were dealing with back home. How come they are very successful business people here? You know, mm. how come they are very good professions? They are doctors and engineers, you know, you know, uh, technicians and all this. How come they're doing well in every, every, every other field that relates to dunya? But the only field that we need them to be, you know, uh, proactive, they are not. Now they are suppressed and they have nightmares and they have, you know, I know what I'm saying is like, yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Allah said, you know yourself, though you may explicitly you know, are on excuses. You know yourself. You know, I may say, well, you know, uh, say I came late because of this, but Allah knows why I came late. And Allah is telling me, you also know why you came late. So, what I'm saying to these people, Alhamdulillah, you did a wonderful job. A lot of our, you know, uncles and fathers and mothers, they build a massage, they build Islamic centers. We appreciate that. I take my hats off for those people. But when it comes to leadership that we need today in the West, mm. they're not fit for it. You know, look, in, the, in Arabic they say, for every position, there's a statement. In every situation, there's a statement. Ibn Taymiyyah used to say, for every generation, it has their own men. You know, for every generation, you know, maybe they were good for building masajid in Islamic schools and so on. Jazakumullah khair. Maybe they are good and they definitely were good. Maybe they are good in, you know, teaching us the manners and akhlaq. Excellent. May Allah reward you. Yeah. But, in terms of speaking to the system is, you know, we have a system that is, you know, uh, embedded with, with racism. There's a system that breathes racism, you know, a system that the veins of that system is nothing but a pure, you know, a discrimination. If you don't know that, step aside, let somebody else do the job. Allow these young people who are not afraid of this, who are not oppressed, who have not been oppressed by others, the systems who knows how to deal with this give them the chance allow them to shine mm -hmm. you know you did your time we became like we were complaining about Qaddafi we were complaining about what called uh, Saddam we have so many Qaddafis here we have so many Saddams here yes. why are we complaining about them you know I have some I know some of the people he was the prisoner they the prisoner of the Imams over 25 years what that in the 25 years the prisoner of the Imam why am I complaining about Qaddafi then? You know, I should not. So mm -hmm. the point is, I don't think the imams who were educated back home or educated, you know, they understand, they, they can do the job. I don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. You know, it, right now we have the movement that happened to uh, George Floyd and, you know, what happened. And, yes. you know, I asked, I asked the imams, I said, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't you give me 30 seconds of your time saying we've been also oppressed. Mm -hmm. We deal with, you know, with systematic racism day and night. You know, say, say something and let us compile. Let's mm -hmm. put five, ten minutes, you know, and send it to, through the media and let the government 
the, the, the federal government know how we feel. You know how many people agree? Hmm. Zero. <laughs> you know the the best the best response. That's probably like the most non-controversial request you could ever make. You know the best response I got. You know it yeah. was, why don't you do it, and then we'll take a look at it. Yeah. What is is like? Why don't you go fight with your you lord? Go. We're sitting right here. <laughs> exactly. So idea of, hey, you know, why don't we do this? Or like, you know, yeah. I tell I tell the community, I said, listen, you know, especially the Somali community, we always complain that the police is not doing anything about uh, Somali youth got killed and there's a violence, there's a drugs, there's a weapons. There's, uh, you know, I said, hey, well, why don't we, you know, it's just a crazy idea, entertain it. Why don't we do like that Tamil community did? I said, what do they do? I said, guess what? They they all came together and said, guess what? We're going to go 8 o'clock, 6 o'clock a.m. We're going to block the gardener. And we won't allow anybody to come into downtown of Toronto. Mm. Guess what happened? Mm. From that day, the police eliminated all the weapons. No more, you know, Tamil gang, tiger gangsters. No more. So I said to Somali community, why don't we do this? Why don't we go there? Mm. You know, the idea of you can do something for yourself. It's, it's far, far, far away. So what I wish you, I should complain and complain. And, but no, there's a time for that. And there's a time for this. You know, one of the professors, he came to me when I was uh, Imam Arad, one of the masajid. I, I will never forget this. And he said, do you know how uh, education system uh, it works against your own people? I said, no. Mm -hmm. He said, do you know why your students always go to, you know, special classes, you know, apply? You know, you know why they, and he explained to me how the system uh, discriminates against him. And I got all fed up. I mean, you should have mm -hmm. seen me that Somali, you know, Somali with banana and berries, I can go like that. You know, I went crazy. <laughs> I, said, what? Yeah. What? I, I, I said, what do you want? He said, you guys should come out. You should come out. Mm. And he's he's been professor at York University for 30 years. I said, how many mm. people do you need? How many people? Mm. He said, as many as you can bring. I said, how about 5,000 Muslims? <laughs> mm. He sat back and he said, Saeed, Imam Saeed, if you can bring me 5,000 people, you can change the prime minister. <laughs> you can remove the prime minister. In the city of Toronto, we have 750,000 Muslims. You cannot bring 2,000, you know, 5,000 Muslims together. Why? Because the leader of the community, they themselves, they're not aware of the severity of the situation. Your children be discriminated. Uh, your daughters been discriminated. You don't understand. I, I see you, mashallah, you became a doctor since 16 years. I don't know what kind of a doctor you are, but, you know, but... I, I have a sister who said, I want to go, she, she would become a medical doctor. And she said, I wanted to go this field, but they would not love me. But my classmate who was from certain faith, she was accepted 
just like that. And she has worse, worse, worse mark than me. Yeah. Because there's a system there. There's a discrimination there. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And I said, we, you guys don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to, what to do for our community to wake up and smell the coffee, as they say. You know, it, it, people don't realize how deep it goes. Like the, the, the discrimination and how the system is there to filter in people. I actually sat, uh, when we do interviews, uh, so there, uh, you, you have like uh, a student there, you have like uh, somebody from faculty, and then you would sometimes maybe have a person from the community, but most likely it's another faculty member, or maybe like it would be um, from the community, right? So they would bring it in, and it's supposed to be an impartial thing, you make your grades, right? And you know how many times a person comes in and then one of the senior, usually white guy, he's going to say like, you know, he's a senior faculty. He says, we're going to let this person in. We're not going to let this other person in. And everybody has to like go along with what uh, that person's decision is. So for example, and I'm not, and I'm not uh, kidding. I'm not exaggerating whatsoever. I had a colleague of mine sit in on the community and he said a very like beautiful white girl came in that a particular, um, uh, uh, professor, faculty member said, you know, she's really good looking. Let's bring it. We're, we're, she's coming into this program. Very, this is how blatant it is. This is how blatant it is. Uh, you know, we don't, I, people don't understand what like goes on behind the curtain. And no, they don't. the fact is, is that uh, these things allow, like I know a, a sister who wore hijab, she had taught marks and for years she couldn't get into the program. And the first time she applied to medicine, she got into medicine. How is that? Like within the first, she had taught marks, taught marks, but because she wore hijab, she's obviously being racialized there, but our community, are we going to be able to stand up? Is the whole community going to be able to stand up for her and say, listen, there's something fishy that's going on here. Show us your statistics. Show us how uh, you, you operate. Uh, I saw this like uh, in, in front of myself, like one of instructors, his son, was in uh, the the class and he is allowed to grade his son and his son would literally, there's a lineup of people w going there to check their, their work. The son would be, Hey dad, can you check my thing? He just jumps over the whole line, gets his thing checked. You know what I mean? I saw this systemically shift look happen. And yet, you know, we can't, we're only going to allow ourselves to be exploited when we allow the system to prevail without us standing up for our rights, because what I find happens is that now the individual Muslims who come into the system, they come into it and they realize, Hey, for me to succeed, I have to put away any of my like voice for myself to stand up for. I have to take away any of my sense of self-worth if I'm going to make it here. Right? So it's almost like they're training themselves. I'm going to be a servant of your system. Because when they come out the other end, they are not uh, maybe as likely to now change it for people who come after them. Right. You know what I mean? Like there, right. there, there was some policies like that they had against Muslims uh, in, the, in, in the school that I was in. And they asked me, why are you making such a big deal of this issue when we have had Muslims who've come through this program and not one of them has ever uh, said that there's anything wrong with what we're doing? You understand what I'm Sorry. saying, Sheikh? Yeah, I was the yeah, first yeah. one. I was I was the first one in that faculty to make an issue for Juma. 
Okay, so the history of that faculty, no Muslim who came in there made any type of issue for Jum'ah Salah. And then you know what, guess what, because I made it an issue and it was a whole thing, Muslims afterwards came and they commended me. It's like, you know what, because of what you did, uh, you know, we're we're able to pray Jum'ah now with, without having uh, to, um, you know, suffer consequences, right? It's like, thank you. So, <laughs> yes, okay. You're welcome. You know what I mean, but Subhanallah, like uh, that—that that is not how it usually operates. So, as you mentioned, we have Muslims that are doctors, we have Muslims that are lawyers, engineers, business owners. But I feel that even though we've accomplished a, a lot, that's not being leveraged to uplift our community. We're not adequately leveraging all these accomplishments to uplift you know, the people who are coming after us, you know? I don't know what to do, Akhid Kareem. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say this, um, uh, a very, uh, somebody that I know, I've been working with him almost three years. He's been, he's a retired politician. And he was telling me about, you know, why this group succeeded why this group succeeded why this group succeeded and i keep saying no 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 and he said they have two things that you people don't have and and he said by the way this politician he came with me to many many imams meeting he came to me with me with to the many massages to address our to to, uh, to address our, uh, awareness in a certain issue and he said, all the groups that I mentioned, they have two things that your brothers don't have and sisters. I said, what are they? He said, unity and a vision. Mm. They don't, they're not united and they don't know where they're going. He said, these people, they have unity and they know exactly what they want. You guys don't know what you want. And everybody is mm. for himself. Every one of you is for himself, you know. And that's the problem of the Ummah. Every masjid is for themselves. Uh, every community is for themselves. You know, and, and we need to understand if you want to live in the West or you live in non-Muslim country, you cannot live like that. You can't. You cannot afford to live like that, period. Mm. Are there any, uh, like you would say, uh, community specific issues uh, that are uh, characteristic to the Somali community? Or are there things that they're particularly dealing with or challenges that that community specifically is dealing with? Somali community, when they came, and I'm not saying this because I'm Somali, for Somali community, when they came, especially Ontario, they really changed the face of Dawa. Uh, when they came, they did not come as individuals. They came by thousands. Um, and they were able to congregate in, in a certain area. They were able to uh, dress or show their dress code, Islamic dress code, jilbab, niqab, abaya, um, where everybody else was like, whoa, what are these people? I've never seen jilbab that big. I've never seen niqab that long. So they did well in that aspect. Uh, they, the Masaj, Somali community are people of the Masaj. They always want to pray in the masjid. Every masjid that you go, mm. if the imam is not Somali, the congregation is Somali, you know. Mm. But there's a problem. And the problem was that generation and the new generation, there's a huge disconnect. 
there is no connection between these two. And because of that, they went two different directions. The younger generation uh, right now are going, mainly boys, the girls are doing much better, but mainly boys, they're going a completely off the grid, as they said, completely uh, unchanted area and the territories, you know. So parents really don't know how to deal with them. They are, yes, they look like Somalis. They may speak, you know, berries, basto, moose, you know, banana, things like that, hilib, you know, but they really don't speak the whole language. Um, so mm. they look like Somalis. They may talk like Somalis. They may, but they not Somalis in 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 in, in a lot of in, in a lot of characteristics like uh, behavior, manners, you know, understanding of the culture and so on. So that is a disconnect in that area that they need to come back and you need to connect with them. Uh, right now, this is, is a, it is pandemic. The pandemic among the Muslim youth is majority of educated youth do not practice Islam. That's a problem. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the studies have been done in 2014, 2017, 2018, that shows more for 24% of the Muslim youth are leaving Islam. That's a serious issue. So as a Muslim community in general, we, we, the, our youth are no longer. You yourself, remember how uh, halaqah, the youth used to be in the halaqah, you know, camps that he used to do, you know, how, you know, camp sunnah, you know, uh, leadership camp, you know, all of these camps they used to do, you know, sleep over. The night that we have a sleep over, we used to go to Southwest Masjid, it used to be packed. You know, ISC was never in, it's not the same. It's not You're the right. same. You're right. The things You're are changing. Right. So children, youth are drifting away from Islam. And because of the celebrity Islam, uh, Islam became something, you know, uh, just a little glimpse. Oh, I, I, I listened to this. Oh, I heard this little clip. Oh, I heard, you know, this uh, 30-second uh, TikTok or 10-second TikTok. Or, you know, mm -hmm. that's what Islam is. In the, the way we, the direction that we're going, we need to revisit the reality of the whole concept of da'wah amongst the youth and for the youth. Really. Mm. Really. Mm. Why do you think there's such a disconnect between these two generations? Myself, what I saw uh, was, I saw like, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, talking to some of the elders and, well, you know, one of them, some of them would say is like, you know, we work like, such long hours we barely see or, or speak with our kids so is that like a major thing or is that just one part of the reason why that there's such a disconnect between you know the these two generations number one there's a difference between tarbiyah and ta'lim so what we give our children is ta'lim not tarbiyah mm. uh, ta'lim is like take your kid to the quran school and they learn alif ba ta qaida nuraniya they memorize you just that's ta'lim that's ta'lim mm -hmm. that's learning mm -hmm. tarbiya is showing them how to live islam and if the parents is busy because of work or because of their social circle if they busy and they trusting the islamic school trusting the quran school they only giving them ta'lim they're not giving them tarbiya when the child reach mm -hmm. certain age they will drift away from you know, whatever authority that they learn, whatever authority that they just drift away from that and they 
do their own things. The disconnect also is we try to raise these children the way we were raised. Like nobody ever, and I'm telling about Brother Saeed, nobody ever told me to do my homework or, you know, to pray. But I was doing it. Once my brother was extremely upset and he said, go to your room and do something like your homework. That was the, I still remember, one time in his entire life. Yeah, like, yeah. Nowadays, the kids are here, they're different. You know, mm. their, their mindset is completely different. You, you got to tell your kid to, you know, uh, brush his teeth. Have you ever, I don't know, but you got to tell your kids who are 16, 17 years, baby, did you brush your teeth this morning? Uh, 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 yeah, your socks clean, you know. So they are different level they may be very savvy in, in in computers and electronics and things like that but they in the different skill set they may not be like that so there's a disconnect parents assuming like said okay uh food was on the table he has uh, clothes over his shoulder so he, he's good to go you know we'll do the same thing here with these kids and i will raise them the way i was raised so and that's not the case. Ali bin Abi Talib used to say, don't raise your children the way you were raised. But in the home, they have that you had that your time and they have their time. So we have to mm -hmm. be careful how we raise our children and understand the change of time and how things are affecting mm -hmm. them as well. Now, mm -hmm. the this major disconnect is that expectation as well. I'm expecting my son to be this, to be this, and to be that. Now, there are certain communities that escape that. Indians, for example, Muslim Indians and Pakistanis and the special Indians, they escape that for many reasons. One, um, Indians, they lived as a minority. They were, they were living with non-Muslims in their own country. So that idea of, okay, you die Muslim, you live as Muslim, we, I bury you as a Muslim, you Muslim, Muslim. So that was in their forefathers and it will be in them. Where as a Somali kid, we even have a different madhab, let alone different religion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my father, he wouldn't even know what madhab I follow because we were only one madhab. So the experience also is different. Um, also the level of education. Um, the most of the mothers who came here because they came of a civil war, they were not educated about the culture of the country. They were not educated, you know, uh, academic, academically, they were not educated as well. So. They didn't know what calculus means. They didn't know what you know bio, bio, what you call biology means or chemistry means. You know, other than knowing the name, they didn't know how to do. So the kids also uh, drifted drifted away from their parents. There are many many uh, factors. The absence of the uh, the father figure also sometimes is a case in many many uh, families. So the point is right now. The study that I was telling you about, they said the people who live in Islam most are also people who are, were affected by civil war, such as number one, Iran, Afghanis, and East Africans who were affected by civil war. Because, you know, mm. Iran, nobody wants to be a Muslim because of what Khomeini did. Uh, Afghani, nobody wants to be a Talibani, for example, you know, and so on. So there's a lot of factors where we, the, we need to understand how the youth are evolving and they're changing, and not like you and I when we were mm. growing in this country. Mm. Would you so do you say it's more of an issue of like the lack of tarbiyah from parents? Is that more of a, a capability issue or more of an effort issue? 
I would say effort. Effort. I would okay. say effort because these parents, these these people who are I'm not talking I'm talking about the older generation. Um, mm. Certain community they live in a certain uh, part of the city and they their income is limited. So a mm. father who is not a PhD holder who does not have engineering degree or medicine you know a degree so he have to put more effort more hours into his work to earn enough mm. to sure. just to, uh, uh, to 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 me to meet the daily daily uh, means so a lot of effort is i think if we put effort then yes it's not that they be capable but the effort is not there and culture clash they didn't know should they raise them as afghani somalis irani pakistani or should they raise muslim canadian so there was also the kid has a different multiple personality the parents have you know the only thing that they know is how to raise him as a somali or afghani or sudani but that's also misunderstanding of the tarbiyah of this time in this era mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's so interesting to see how the youth have evolved you know as you mentioned before you would have somali youth like back in the day uh you tell you tell them sit down they're quietly listening to the sheikh like no um they're not going to contradict the sheikh or speak out against the sheikh or anything like that now yeah. you have some that as soon as the sheikh starts speaking if they hear something they don't like it's like they'll get triggered okay I'm very upset with this and I'm walking out. They're not going to hear the rest of the lecture, the rest of the khutbah. It's like they're triggered and they want to leave. You know what I mean? Have you experienced right. this as well? Like this this evolution where they don't want to even, if it's like within a few seconds, if it's something that they don't like, it's they're not willing to give it any time, you know, to listen to it or to open to change their opinion. Well, you know, why do you think they came up with TikTok? <laughs> Because they, mm. you know, these kids nowadays they want something quick. If I'm not connected mm. with you immediately, I'll change. I'll move up, or I'll, I'll scroll, I'll scroll, scroll down, or I'll change the channel. So if the sheikh is, is saying something that I don't like, I'm out of out of here. If 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 I don't like the way he's speaking, I'm out of here. If I disagree with him, I'm out of here. You know. Uh, you see, have you ever watched? Do you have kids? Uh, say it. I don't know how many if you have kids or not. Yeah, but I have three. I have three kids. Yes. Yeah. How old? How old is the oldest? Ten. Still, still rookie. Okay. Now, when they reach a certain age, you know, they themselves, you will, you have just give them the remote control and let and see how many channels they will watch or in in ten minutes. They don't, they can't concentrate. They have to flip the channel, flip, 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 flip. Mm-hmm. And you will go crazy just looking at the TV screen changing. So nowadays, anybody who is talking to the youth, number one, he have to be very concise to the point. Uh, the akhlaqiyat, the adab, the manners that we used to know, we prayed Salat al-Janazah on them long time ago, you know, without without even having a wudu. You know, we prayed Janazah on that. But what we need to do is we need to teach them. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, you know, if you have a little baby and you're trying to spoon feed the baby and, and as soon as you open his mouth, you don't put that piece of meat or whatever food in his mouth, he may just change his mind and walk away. It's the same thing now. Their minds is that it will give you a gap of seconds. If you cannot crack that, if you go through that crack, 
then they may listen to you for a minute or two or 10 max. And that's why if you see right now, commercials is going to be, they're going to be six seconds, six seconds, mm. you know, you know, mm. for what, what, what advertise their cars in six seconds, you know, because nobody wants to sit there for 10 seconds. So if you want to teach Sharia, mm. you know, we got to bring, we got to learn how to accommodate these kids and the need of these kids. Mm. So uh, thank you for your time uh, spending with us. Uh, there's so many other topics and subjects. Obviously, um, you know, you have a lot of experience and alhamdulillah combined with knowledge gives us some great insight, uh, community level, da'wah level, and also, uh, you know, maybe planning for a better vision for the future, inshallah. But I think we're going to see some changes. I think there's a lot of positive changes in the horizon. And just for the fact that you're willing to openly speak out and say, hey, listen, we need to take a critical look at ourselves and we need to unite and support one another. I think it's possible that the first step is that we should make the niya and we should talk about it and we should put some efforts towards that. So, Jazamakhir for that. I just want to, I just want to say, um, let us not mix quantity with quality. Mm. Don't be fooled by same masajid that the people used to come for one Jum'ah, now they have three Jum'ahs. Don't be fooled by uh, Musalla al-Eid that the people used to have one Musalla al-Eid in the city, now we have five of them. Islam was never about quantity, it was always about quality. In the battle of Uhud, in the battle of Uhud, we were 313 Sahabi, we won. In the I'm sorry, in the battle of Badr, I mean. Better, better, better. In the of we lost. The number was larger. And mm. so it's it's never the it's never quality, it's never quantity, it's about quality. So mm. when you look at the horizon, when you look at the people who are coming into even into the field of dawah, the field of dawah. Now, when you look back and you look at Abdullah Hakim for what he did. Uh, you look back and you see Siraj Wahaj, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. You come a little bit and you see, you know, the Da'is who came after them. And then, now look at where you are right now, today. The people who are uh, leading the social media mm -hmm. in terms of da'wah, in terms of, uh, you know, by the way, media, social media became a member for those who could not find member. So if you have a no member of khutbah, just come to you as a social media. Just open a Facebook account on you yeah. as Sheikh. You know. Now look at the yeah. quality of the, of the comer of the newcomers. Look how much knowledge they have. Look how much understanding they have. Look at their willingness of to sit back, sit back, and you know learn. Mm. Where Imam Abu Hanifa and others. For 17 years, and one of the imams, he said, I sat under my sheikh for 17 years, and I have not learned one single word from him. Mm. Because he already learned 17 years ago everything that the sheikh has, has but yet he was sitting. Now, I want you mm. to reflect on the new new page, newcomers, and then assess the future of Islam and future of da'wah. If the comer, if the newcomers, are people who are rasikhin fil ilm, 
they have ilm, they have understanding of da'wah, they know ab'ad, the depth of da'wah, they know what we need, they know what direction they should lead. If that is what is coming, then we are in very good hands. But if the newcomers, their concern is how many likes, how many pages, I have a Twitter, Twitter account, I have, you know, Instagram account, I have Facebook account, I have, you know, a TikTok account. If that is what the vendetta is, then we should be concerned. We should worry. Mm. So, again, do not confuse quality with quantity. I have, mm. I know masajid are packed, but after the masjid, after Salat al-Jum'ah, how many people sit for Halakat al-Jum'ah? In mm -hmm. comparison, I went, I'll tell you, I'll conclude this. I was raised in, in, in Mantika called Khobar, um, Al-Khobar, here is in Saudi. Mm -hmm. Next to us was a masjid called Masjid Umar bin Abdul Aziz. Mm -hmm. The Imam and the Khatib of that masjid was Muhammad bin Salih Al-Munajj. Mm -hmm. If you want to... 10 Salat al Jum'ah, you better be there 8 o'clock a.m. Salat al Jum'ah. If you want to attend Salat al Taraweeh, you better be ready to be there almost till midnight. Because mm. we finished the old man, he's still reading Surah, you know, first ayat. Mm. After 10 years, I went back to the same masjid. And by the way, the masjid was massive. And Muhammad bin Salih al Munajjid. He used to sit right underneath the member. And when you go and you, when you enter the mission, you see, you will see ocean of qutra, white qutra, dua, pens and paper, writing, you know. Ten years later, I went back to the same masjid. The sheikh moved his, masjid, his, his table to almost at the, at the door of the masjid. And the people who are sitting, it's not even, they're not even 50 people. Mm. And then I came for Salat al-Jum'ah, people sitting outside, more than before. So then I realized, it's not the Jum'ah that I should count on, it's how many students of knowledge I should count on. How many people coming for Salat al-Fajr I should count on. This is what matters. So mm. if you see that in the horizon, we have these young people coming, Alhamdulillah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and may Allah bless you for having me over. And I would encourage all the brothers and I have my Facebook account also here. I would encourage all the brothers and sisters to always tune to live. Um, and <laughs> oh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, you know, bless you for what you're doing. So thank you very much to all of you. And we hope to continue this collaboration. And I think that's what we need to start doing within uh, our ummah is like we need to have people who are willing to put themselves to the line, hold hands with each other and help uh, bring a better reality that we can all inshallah ta'ala benefit from. So uh, for your time and your contribution, your wisdom. And we got to do this again. We have to do this again inshallah. So, all right, Sheikh. So to our viewers, inshallah, we will uh, have our next podcast Thursday evening. And as always, remember, we want to live by the haq. We want to die by the haq. And just when you think life is stuck, tune into life haq. Jazawamakhir.
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.